Welcome to the Tales of American History, the Witnessing History Education Foundation podcast, educating Americans to understand the history of their country and of other countries so that they will appreciate the value of America's unique free institutions. It's good to be back after the shutdown due to the pandemic. I thank Mr. Neil Kesterson and Dynamic Studios for making their studios available to us after all this time. We're happy to be back. I'm your host, Genevieve Brown, and we will be speaking with the Foundation President, Kent Masterson Brown, author of a forthcoming book, Mead at Gettysburg, A Study in Command. The new book is a companion volume to Kent's book, Retreat from Gettysburg, Lee Logistics and the Pennsylvania Campaign, published in 2005. But first, let us remind you to become an American hero who participates in our mission by joining us at witnessinghistory.org, the website of the Witnessing History Education Foundation. Click on the Make a Gift button to make a tax-deductible donation to the Foundation. Read our monthly newsletter on our website to keep up to date on our latest film projects. View for free the Foundation's documentary films, both on the website and on the Foundation's YouTube platform. View also the Foundation's free teacher education materials that conform to grade-level education standards at pbslearning.org. Now... Let's take a journey back through time with Kent Masterson Brown as we discuss the first 21 months of the existence of the Army of the Potomac leading up to the Battle of Gettysburg. Welcome, Kent. (laughs) Thank you. It's great to be here after all this time. Isn't it good to be back? Yeah, it's great. Well, so let's talk about the Union Army before the Battle of Gettysburg. Let's talk about what it looked like and what it did. It's, it's the Army of the Potomac is what we're talking about. Okay. And um, the Army of the Potomac was the um, Union Army that was assembled uh, beginning in August 1861. And um, uh, a Union Army had just suffered a horrific defeat at the hands of Confederate troops at what is called the First Battle of Bull Run on July 21, 1861. And um, that battle was not only uh, a defeat, but it was a humiliating defeat. Uh, When you think about it, uh, as the two armies were about to engage, uh, the the Union Army then was called the Army of Northeastern Virginia. Mm. And it was commanded by a Major General Irvin McDowell and as they moved toward Bull Run, um, they were uh, they confronted a Confederate force that was commanded by General Joseph E. Johnston, and um, uh, an army uh, an army called the Army of the Potomac mm. uh, that was commanded by General P. G. T. Beauregard. And uh, to make it simple, the the battle did not go well for the Union <laughs> Army from the start. <laughs> Ultimately, they were not only defeated in the field, but they were routed. And the rout turned into a panic. And all along the hills uh, uh, on either side of this engagement were spectators from Washington with picnic baskets going out to watch this thing. And of course, in the midst (laughs) of this humiliating defeat, 
not only did the army go into panic and retreat back toward Washington, but all the spectators did too. Mm. And of course, here you are. I mean, nearly 3,000 Union casualties are on the field. Uh, The army has been routed and humiliated and is running back toward Washington. And this is Abraham Lincoln's baptism of fire. This is the first thing that happens to one of his armies uh, in the American Civil War. Well, after that humiliating defeat, uh, Abraham Lincoln let General um, McDowell go, reassigned him, and named Major General George Brinton McClellan as commander of what was left of that army. And McClellan brought what was left of that army and other regiments coming into Washington into an army that he called the Army of the Potomac. Okay. And um, on November 1st, 1861, McClellan was named not only not only was he commander of that army, but he was actually named commander in chief of all United States armies um, after the retirement of General Winfield Scott. Mm-hmm. So here you have the Army of the Potomac. Uh, to give you an idea of the size of the Army of the Potomac, it roughly at this stage of its life was probably about 60,000 troops mm-hmm. uh, divided up into various Army Corps. Um, it had um, supporting it and pulling it upwards to fifty to 60,000 horses and mules. Um, and um, it was an enormous force, but its purpose was to protect the capital and to hopefully defeat the Confederate enemy in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And so if you're looking at any of the great battles in Virginia during the Civil War, Uh, particularly the war from 1861 until 1864, uh, you're looking at the Army of the Potomac almost exclusively, not quite, but almost. And uh, in 1864, now you get other armies uh, active in Virginia, but the Army of the Potomac continues all the way to Appomattox. So this army is put together in the fall of 1861, and um, it goes all the way until Appomattox in 1865. Okay. That's a, that's a great overview. Mm-hmm. Now, I would like to talk a little bit about your forthcoming book. Yeah. We're so excited about this. Um, your new book is called Meade at Gettysburg, A Study in Command. Right. And it's coming out in early June of 2021. Right. So it's publication and print is imminent now. Um, Let's talk about the focus of your book. What happened with the Army of the Potomac from the beginning of the war until Meade took command Mm -hmm. at at and right before the Battle of Gettysburg? The book, of course, is about General Meade, George Gordon Meade. Mm -hmm. And um, it is a... um, uh, a, a, a book that addresses Meade's generalship, mm-hmm. how he commanded the army, mm-hmm. how he became commander of the army, and how he commanded it both at the Battle of Gettysburg and during his pursuit of Lee's army after the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, but to look at 
when George Meade becomes commander, which is on June 28, 1863, um, this poor army from the time of its creation in the fall of 1861 until George Meade becomes commander on June 28, 1863, had not won one battle in Virginia against its enemy. So for the first 21 months of its existence, it's going from battle to battle and never winning. No victory. This enormous, well-supplied, well-equipped army backed by the United States. That's right. Okay. That's right. It was defeated uh, in every single engagement Uh, or it was simply confounded, uh, if not defeated. In other words, unable to do what it had set out to do and caused to withdraw. Who was who was uh, their enemy in the early battles before Gettysburg? And was General Lee the commander of that army? Or, or tell us a little bit about the other side. Okay. Well, after the first battle of Bull Run, um, uh, General, as I stated, General McClellan, was named commander of the Army of the Potomac. And um, he became commander, as I said, in the fall of 61. And it was not until April of 1862 that McClellan did anything with this army (laughs) to try to move it against its enemy. Was he training? Training. Training, Training, organizing. Mm -hmm. He was a great organizer. There's Mm -hmm. no question about that. Mm -hmm. The question is, can this guy actually lead this army in in a tactical setting against an enemy. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened was that George McClellan planned an operation that would take that army, not by land, but by sea, from Washington all the way down to Fort Monroe at the bottom of the Virginia Peninsula between the York and the James Rivers. He would get up to Fort Monroe, disembark this army and all of its horses and mules and artillery, all that, and then drive from Fort Monroe north, first to Yorktown, where the first heavy defenses would be found, Mm -hmm. because the Confederate Army was watching this. Mm -hmm. And as they saw all these ships moving down toward the toward the peninsula, they began to erect fortifications to defend the capital. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of it was for McClellan's army to drive north through all those defenses and get to Richmond, which was the capital of the Confederacy, okay. and try to seize it. Who was commanding the Confederate army when they built all the fortifications at Yorktown? General Joseph E. Johnston, the okay. same commander who was commanding Confederate forces at the first battle of Bull Run. Mm, mm-hmm. He was now in command of the Confederate armies on the peninsula, mm-hmm. and he erected fortifications at Yorktown, outside of Williamsburg. A lot of us, a lot of the folks listening to this, have been to those sites, mm-hmm. um, and then all the way back toward Richmond, which were which was heavily fortified. Mm-hmm. And so the advance got down there on the second of April. And he began, McClellan began the movement of his army up the peninsula on April 4. He easily broke through the defenses at Yorktown. And he got all the way up to about 15 to 20 miles south of Richmond, Mm. where Joseph E. Johnston 
uh, confronted him in a pitched engagement uh, that has been known since as the Battle of Fair Oaks or Seven Pines. And in that battle, uh, Joseph E. Johnston, on the 31st of May, 1862, was badly wounded Mm. and taken from the field. After that fighting, though, McClellan's army was stalled. It, it, it could not drive any farther. Um, its supply base was on the uh, York River um, at a place called White House. And um, it was simply stalled. Hmm. On the other side, President Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy, named General Robert E. Lee to take over command. And Lee took over command of that army on June 1st, 1862. Mm. Up to this point in time, he had been an advisor to the president. Okay. So now McClellan is going to face Robert E. Lee. Mm. And what Robert E. Lee does first is he calls uh, for an army to join him in the Shenandoah Valley. This army is commanded by a fellow named Thomas Jonathan Jackson, who had gotten the nickname Stonewall in the battle, first battle of Bull Run. Mm. Mm-hmm. Stonewall Jackson, believe it or not, in the spring of 1862, had not only defeated one army in the Shenandoah Valley, but four. Four different Union armies were defeated by this man. And his and his troops. It's a spectacular. By this moment in 1862, yes. By the time oh Lee calls him to uh, join the uh, uh, Lee's army, mm-hmm. and so Stonewall Jackson begins the movement of his army toward the peninsula from the Shenandoah Valley. Mm-hmm. Lee, however, has his plans pretty well made out. This guy is an aggressive general. He plans to begin a series of attacks. Lee is a very offensive-minded commander. Mm -hmm. He notes that George McClellan appears to be moving his base of supply from White House on the York River to Harrison's Landing on the James River, move it across the peninsula. Mm -hmm. And as he's trying to move all his supplies across that peninsula, Lee strikes him. As Lee strikes him the first time, Stonewall Jackson's army is near. Okay, it it gets there. Mm -hmm. From June 25th until July 1, approximately seven days, Mm -hmm. Lee strikes him at what places called Beaver Dam Creek, (laughs) Gaines's Mill, Savage's Station, Glendale, and finally, Malvern Hill. And McClellan is literally forced with his back against the James River. And Lee makes his last strike at him at Malvern Hill mm-hmm. on the 1st of July of 1862. The attack is defeated. It fails. But nevertheless, McClellan has suffered so much. Mm-hmm that his own War Department demands that he bring his army back to Washington. Hmm. 
Just which like, he does. Mm-hmm. He evacuates the peninsula. So here, they've suffered the defeat at first, first bull run. Mm-hmm. And now the grand invasion of the, uh, of the peninsula, ho- hopefully to take Richmond, has been stopped. And McClellan has been, to, has been forced to withdraw that army off the peninsula and take it back to Washington. So by mid-July, the poor Army of the Potomac is now on transports trying to get back to Washington. It's just incredible. That's really an unbelievable tale. It's it's incredible. And, of course, it goes on from there. Mm -hmm. So so what happens after they get back to Washington? They reassemble. They they regroup. Yeah, they regroup. Okay. And, And in the meantime, another Union Army has been put together. Um, this one commanded by a major general, John Pope, who's been brought in from the Western Theater, fighting in Missouri and, and uh, the, the uh, Trans-Mississippi and, uh, and, and Western Tennessee. Pope uh, puts an army together just outside of Washington. And uh, his mission that uh, he has told the Lincoln administration it would be, would be to take his army down uh, alongside the tracks of the Orange and Alexandria Railroad Mm -hmm. that goes from Alexandria, Virginia, to Orange, Virginia, Orange Courthouse, Mm -hmm. then to Culpeper, uh, follows that that route into the heart of Virginia. Mm -hmm. And his purpose in um, forming this and moving in that direction was that he was hoping to draw... Lee's army, elements of Lee's army, away from the peninsula to help Mm -hmm. McClellan. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, McClellan was finally told to come back to Washington. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, John Pope moved toward the center of Virginia. He soon learned that um, Robert E. Lee was now on the move north, and our friend Stonewall Jackson had been sent west into central Virginia and then north with the idea of falling on Pope's right flank. So here we go. On August 29, 1862, these two armies collide, Lee's Jack and Jackson's and Pope's mm-hmm. army. Mm-hmm. And um, this, an engagement erupts. And the engagement erupts on the very same fields in Prince William County, where the first battle of Bull Run was fought. <laughs> this time without the spectators, <laughs> This I time imagine. without the spectators. Nobody <laughs> wants to watch this stuff anymore. Right. No, no. And, and, and Pope has tried, um, tried attacks against Lee's army. All of them have failed. Mm-hmm. And on the very next day, August 30, Lee counterattacks and literally uh, devastates Pope's, what he calls the Army of Virginia, Mm -hmm. just devastates it. More than 14,000 killed, wounded, captured, and missing in the Army of the, in in Pope's army alone. So here's Lincoln. He's seen three campaigns now by September 1, 1862. He's had three campaigns. First, Manassas, 
Then the Army of the Potomac's venture on the peninsula. And now the second battle of Manassas or Bull Run. And for and what, he, what does he have to show for it? He's had three armies virtually humiliated, defeated and humiliated. His total casualties now in Virginia alone are over 33,000 killed, wounded, captured, and missing in just his own armies. That's an enormous amount of damage. But yeah, think yeah. about it politically oh, yeah. for Lincoln. He's probably asking himself, why did I get myself in this in the first place? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would yeah. think. But, I mean, it shows you that I mean, there, this, there's just no relief from the defeat. Right. So, uh, and what happens after, after the second battle of Bull Run? Lee begins to move north. This Lee, I hope people can see this. Lee is not only a very a superior military commander, he is an aggressive military commander. This guy goes after you. He's, he's the guy you would love to have on your football team. <laughs> he, 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 he is an aggressive fighter. He moves north. In Washington, amidst all this chaos and confusion, the Lincoln administration turns once again to George McClellan. Now, McClellan is popular in the Army. The troops like him. Um, and even though his, his tactical handling of the army is somewhat suspect, the troops like him. They think he's a great organizer, and they like him. Little Mac, as he's called. And he'd kind of parade with his hat in his hand in front of the troops, and they all cheered and yelled. I mean, it was a He was well-liked. Well yeah, yes. it, was, it was some— He had charisma. And so, um, anyway, he takes what's left of Pope's army and troops that have poured into Washington— Mm-hmm. And he reassembles the Army of the Potomac. And he begins to move west out of Washington toward Lee. Lee crosses the Potomac River uh, just near Leesburg at White's Ferry, uh, moves into Maryland, moves to Frederick, Maryland, and McClellan is now pursuing him. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get beyond Frederick into the South Mountain Range, and there at places like uh, Turner Pass, uh, Fox's Gap, Crampton's Gap, these are gaps in the mountain through which roads run, including the National Road, mm-hmm. the first. We've been through all of those gaps uh, oh, many, times many times with your tour groups. <laughs> That's and, right. right. It's That's been, right. Yeah. And, and the, the most prominent is Turner Pass, and mm-hmm. the National Road runs through there. And that's U.S. 40A today mm-hmm. is, is the National Road. Mm-hmm. And um, McClellan, on the 14th of September, attacks Lee at each of those gaps. Mm-hmm. Lee falls back from those gaps after some tremendous loss in, in, the, in the Army of the Potomac and, mm-hmm. and some serious losses to Lee as well. It was, it was pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. That same day, Stonewall Jackson had been detached from Lee's army and sent to try to capture Harper's Ferry on the, where the Shenandoah and the Potomac River merge. Mm-hmm. Um, that same day, September 14. Stonewall Jackson captures Harper's Ferry, captures 13,000 Union troops at Harper's Ferry. 
Now imagine the reports coming back to the War Department and Lincoln. <laughs> I mean, he's lost 33,000 leading up to this. He's now lost some more. And now he sees that 13,000 of his troops have surrendered to Stonewall Jackson. Mm. This, is, this is nothing but bad news. Mm-hmm. Well, Lee falls back to the west. He crosses a place, a stream called Antietam Creek. And he basically sets up a line of defense just west of Antietam Creek. And on September 17, McClellan brings the Army of the Potomac up across uh, Antietam Creek to confront Lee. And on the sep- September 17, he begins a series of attacks beginning against Lee's left flank on the north, ending with his right flank to the south. And this September 17 has to go down as the bloodiest single day in American history. In that one day, from early in the morning until sunset, more than 23,000 casualties will be um, the result of the fighting. It's a staggering for one day. Mm. And he tries first Lee's left and fails to break it, fighting in the cornfield around the famed Dunker Church. Then he tries the center in a sunken road, and he breaks through only to be stopped by reinforcements coming in from Harper's Ferry. Then he tries along the south and attacks across an old stone bridge, since known as Burnside's Bridge, named for the Corps commander, Ninth Corps down there. They get across the bridge. They force Lee's right flank back to the town of Sharpsburg, only to have another division out of Stonewall Jackson's wing, commanded by A.P. Hill, arrive in time mm. and block the Union advance. It stalls out. They fail to defeat Lee's army. And even though Lee's army crosses the Potomac uh, before the Union army does to pursue him and mm-hmm. gives up the field, mm-hmm. this is no victory for George McClellan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, it's... his losses are so huge uh, that instead of him immediately launching a pursuit of, of Lee, his army is so bloodied that he stays right there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have seen the famous photograph of Lincoln visiting uh, McClellan. And you see there's a tent and Lincoln is standing up and there's mm-hmm. McClellan looking at Lincoln and all these generals and officers are around him. It's a famous, famous picture. Mm-hmm. Well, that's right after the Battle of Antietam. And that was fought on September 17. And it was not until the 26th of October that George McClellan moved that army back across the Potomac to pursue Lee. So they were resting, recuperating, recovering. Recovering. Recovering is what it is. Recovering their dead, trying to heal the wounded. Wounded. Now, I believe that photograph you just described, didn't you put that in your Cushing of Gettysburg book? Uh, is Alonzo Cushing in that picture? No. Oh, okay. No. I'm thinking of another one. George Custer was. George though. Custer was. <laughs> it was, okay. was Cushing's classmate. Yes. And you see him over on the right side of the picture in front of a tent. Yes. He's a little aide to yes. uh, George McClellan. Okay. He always gets his photograph taken, though. Uh, Custer was a <laughs> was a, uh, a a pursuer of 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 
take a picture of me. Sort of thing, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? A press hound. Okay. Yeah. So, so so George McClellan, he, he winds up moving the army back into Virginia. And at Warrenton, Virginia, uh, he is removed as commander of the Army of the Potomac for the last time. He's probably so relieved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and named in his place is General Ambrose Burnside, who, as I mentioned, commanded the Ninth Corps, at, attacked across the Antietam Bridge, mm-hmm. Burnside's, Burnside's Bridge at Antietam. Bridge. Mm-hmm. And Burnside follows Lee all the way to the Rappahannock River. Lee falls back to Fredericksburg. And he's planning, of course, it being there to protect the rich, Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy, right. which is just south of Fredericksburg. Mm-hmm. And um, Burnside uh, develops a plan to attack Lee at, at Fredericksburg. First, though, and he has to get his army across the Rappahannock. So he builds bridges across the Rappahannock um, all the time under fire. Bill's bridges, they get bridges across the Rappahannock River. These are pontoon bridges. Pontoon, they're mm-hmm. supported, exactly, supported by pontoons. Mm-hmm. And um, on the 13th of December, Burnside orders a frontal attack against Lee's army situated along heights behind Fredericksburg. Mm-hmm. This means these poor devils are going to have to attack across ground going literally at just slightly less than a 45-degree angle up mm-hmm. in order Heights. to reach the Confederate works. And the Confederates are mostly behind stone walls, gun emplacements, everything else up there. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you don't need to say too much about what would have happened in a situation like that. The uh, Union Army of the Potomac was mauled. I mean, it was virtually uh, uh, demolished in many ways. The attacks were... Um, uh, were, were brutal, uh, met by horrific gunfire. And in fact, by the end of the day of December 13th, um, Burnside could count 13,000 of his men as casualties. So mm. just now we're, just start to rack them, rack them up. Remember, it was 33,000 after um, second Manassas, second Bull Run. Then you have Antietam. And now you have this. So we're now closing in on between fifty and 60,000 casualties mm-hmm. in the Army of the Potomac. Yeah. Well, um, Burnside, uh, obviously, his, his efforts were not received very well in Washington. However, he had one more plan in mind, and that is to try to go up the Rappahannock River uh, to a point uh, 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 where he could cross at Kelly's Ford and then try to strike Lee from behind. Uh, he left in, um, in, uh, on the, uh, uh, in, in January, on the 20th of January, uh, in a driving rainstorm and sleet storm. Oh. And for two days, in it January. poured rain and sleet. Mm. And this poor army of the Potomac became bogged down in mud. And finally, he called it off. And it was for hence, henceforth known as the Mud March. Mm-hmm. Burnside was relieved of command on the 26th of January, 1863. And in his place was named General Joseph Hooker. Now, Hooker um, 
had been a, a division commander, then a corps commander uh, in the Army of the Potomac all the way through, highly political man, um, uh, and um, uh, one who, as, as one member of Lincoln's cabinet said, I do not doubt uh, Joe Hooker's bravery, but I don't have much confidence in him. Nevertheless, he becomes commander of the Army of the Potomac. And do you think this is a position that Hooker pursued? I mean, who wants to command the Army of the Potomac at this point? <laughs> at this stage, yeah. <laughs> or do you think that Hooker saw something in this for himself? Well, every, every officer now, um, up to this point in time, like in every war, would love to have on his record that he was named Army Commander, mm-hmm. particularly of the principal army in the field. Mm-hmm. And um, they vie for that. Mm-hmm. They should normally, under normal circumstances, they mm-hmm. would. And he was no different. He uh, he wanted to see his name in the bright lights as well. Mm-hmm. He was actually wounded in the field at Antietam, and the person who took over command of his corps at Antietam when he was wounded was George Gordon Meade. Oh, okay. So, so that's where Meade kind of emerges. Well, that's where scene. he first emerges as sure. a as a potential. Yes, mm-hmm. precisely. Okay. But so he was. This Meade and Hooker know one another very well. All right. Um, Okay. So okay, so now Hooker's in charge now of Hooker's this charge. beleaguered army. This right. is a very uh, this the morale has to be low. It ha- it is it has they just can't win. No, they get they're they're, they're being humiliated. Right, and they're suffering terribly. Mm-hmm. Now imagine too, um, in a situation like this, uh, we're now talking the end of January. Mm-hmm. Um, when, this is eighteen sixty three. Sixty three when mm-hmm. Hooker's named. Think of what it's like in Washington uh, where Lincoln is looking for volunteer regiments. Mm-hmm. They haven't instituted There's a no draft. draft. Okay. But, but the real problem is who's going to volunteer for this army? Mm-hmm. It's hard to make a case. It's isn't hard to it? make a case for a soldier to, or for a, a fellow to say, yeah, okay, I'll put a uniform on, I'll join that. Mm-hmm. Not now, not with this. Mm-hmm. So what happens? as a result of this sort of defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat, is in March, Lincoln and Congress institute the draft. Oh, they do. Okay. Yeah. And they have to. They have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, drafts are never popular. Mm-mm. But think of them here. Mm-hmm. There were threats of riots mm-hmm. in the big cities like New York, Philadelphia, Mm-hmm. Uh, Baltimore. They've already lost the equivalent of our losses in the Vietnam War. Oh, yeah. Oh, we're past that. Yeah, we're past, past that. that. Yeah. And the population's smaller, so the impact's bigger. The impact yeah. is huge. Mm-hmm. Well, so George, uh, 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 Joe Hooker takes, uh, takes over command. Mm-hmm. And he's in command uh, when the draft is instituted. Uh, he's having trouble replacing people, of course. You know, as you get these, these casualties rack up. He's having trouble getting people into that army, mm-hmm. and uh, the administration is. And so um, he sets up a plan where he is going to move the army, much like Burnside tried, uh, a- along the Rappahannock River and try to get behind Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, he um, uh, th- this uh, uh, Lee is at Fredericksburg. 
And so Hooker manages to get across the Rappahannock River at Kelly's Ford and get to a position behind Lee's army. Get this now. And at a place not too far from a crossroads known as Chancellorsville. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He gets behind him. Lee, from his own scouts, learns exactly what Hooker's doing. Mm -hmm. Lee, what he does is he, he takes one division, leaves it in place at Fredericksburg, same site where they defeated the Union Army in December, leaves them right there, Marie's Heights. With the rest of the army, he moves them, to, literally does an about face, and moves them toward Hooker. And then on the 2nd of May, 1863, he turns to Stonewall Jackson and he says, I want you, and he has a fellow, a local man, who can look at the map and tell Lee and Jackson, if you follow this road uh, around in this direction, you'll be on the right flank of the enemy. But the enemy won't see you because the woods are so dense. But there is a small path all the way around there. And he leads Jackson's hmm. wing of the army on that path. Hmm. Suddenly, Jackson appears uh, uh, in line, uh, ready to assault the rear elements of Hooker's army. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and on May 2nd, launches an attack. And the first units he, he hits is Oliver Otis Howard's 11th Corps. A lot of German-speaking troops in this unit. Mm. And behind them is the some of the 3rd Corps. These are the draftees, These are right? draftees. Some mm -hmm. of them are volunteers now. Mm -hmm. These are Germans went into this war with great mm -hmm. aggressiveness. Um, mm -hmm. It was their key to citizenship. Mm -hmm. Of course. And so here, here's this 11th Corps, a corps after Chancellorsville, the rest of the Army of the Potomac loved to hate because they thought they just ran. And mm -hmm. in many ways, they did. They got surprised by an overwhelming number of troops coming at mm -hmm. them. And Jackson literally rolled them up. Mm -hmm. Even with an attempt on the part of one corps to cross the Rappahannock River and strike that Confederate line left behind at Fredericksburg, this corps commanded by John Sedgwick, they broke through, but Lee detaches yet another division and has them strike the flank of Sedgwick's corps that's coming up trying to force into Lee's, into the, into, in, to, to overwhelm Lee, mm -hmm. and strikes into his flank. Sedgwick is stalled with that attack. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the Army of the Potomac is running away from what's now Chancellorsville, mm -hmm. trying to get across the Potomac River. Mm -hmm. This battle, the Battle of Chancellorsville, has to be one of the most stunning tactical victories of the entire Civil War. Mm -hmm. We've never seen anything quite like it. Mm -hmm. And it's pure battlefield genius that's doing this. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no question about who— Well, the, and the superior uh, intelligence that Lee had by having that man on the ground— Of course. —who knew the topography. Who, who knew all the paths. Mm -hmm. And uh, they got onto the flank, got in 
into the rear of the Union Army of the Potomac and attacked them. Mm -hmm. The upshot of Chancellorsville was yet another humiliating defeat. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Union casualties there uh, exceeded 16,000. Mm. Um, Hooker stays in command. Um, he, uh, Lee begins on June 5th a move north. The idea of getting back into Maryland, crossing the Potomac, getting back into Maryland, ultimately into Pennsylvania to forage the army, mm -hmm. get get food and Resupply. supplies. It can't get in Virginia because it's battle-scarred down there. Mm -hmm. And uh, to, all, to, to Hooker's credit, he follows well. He's, he follows with great speed. And he uh, finally gets to um, Frederick, Maryland. Lee, by this time, is in the Cumberland Valley of, Pencil of Maryland in Pennsylvania. And on the 28th, 28th of June... Um, the Lincoln administration finally relieves Hooker of command and gives it to George Gordon Meade. So that's how, that's how General Meade ends up in command of the Army of the Potomac. And it's just, he didn't know this, but it's just five days. Yeah. Or five days? To, it, no, three days till the Battle of Gettysburg. Be three days until he's actually in, elements mm -hmm. of his army are in combat at Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. uh, what's interesting is that Every other commander of the Army of the Potomac had been uh, approached by the War Department mm -hmm. uh, to determine whether he would be willing to serve mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as commander. Mm -hmm. Everyone. An interview, so to speak. Like an interview. Mm -hmm. yeah, would you be willing to take this? Mm -hmm. He really only wants someone who's willing to do it, right? Right. Not with George Meade. Why? No one wanted to become commander of the Army of the Potomac. Okay, yeah. Nobody. Not by now. No. And the Lincoln and his chief of staff, general-in-chief, they called him then, Henry Halleck, became so upset with Hooker. Hooker constantly wanting more men, constantly chiding them um, to the point of distraction, really. And... There was had been a standing order given by the War Department that two things must be protected at all costs by the Army of the Potomac. One was Washington, of course, <laughs> but the other was Harper's Ferry. The armory. The armor. Well, the armory, but also it was the line of the Baltimore and oh, Ohio the railroad. railroad. Mm -hmm. So, and there was always an occupational force at Harper's Ferry, mm -hmm. and it may seem tri frivolous for them to have expected. Harper's Ferry to be something to be never to be given up. But I think they were stung by the fact that Lee took 13,000 prisoners of war there in 1862. And they didn't want to see that again. That's memorable. It is memorable. <laughs> uh, but, but finally, it, it was Hooker got so angry because he couldn't get the garrison at Harper's Ferry into his army that he just finally told him, well, then I asked to be relieved. This was on the 27th of June. And, of course, that night, they took it under consideration and, by God, relieved him. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. they also said to one another, this is Lincoln, this is uh, Henry Halleck, uh, the Secretary of War Stanton. They said, look it, there's no way we can approach anybody, George Meade or anyone, and say, would you take over command? Because they all recognize it. I'll say no. Mm 
So That's what they how said, bad it is now. Yeah, what they did, they told the, um, the fellow who would take the orders. They wrote out orders for George Meade. Mm-hmm. We're going to order you to become commander. Mm. The fellow who was uh, James Hardy, uh, a young a colonel, very well liked in the army, mm-hmm. who was the uh, aide in, in the War Department to Edwin Stanton. He would be the one to take the orders to Hooker, telling him he's relieved, and to George Meade, telling him he's commander. He's mm-hmm. ordered to be commander. Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, but they told Hardy, they said, Meade is going to try to get out of it. <laughs> Anyone with sense uh, who would. <laughs> it's, it's to their credit. They, they came to that conclusion, really. But think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, 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 they said, look, he's going to try to get out of it. Take no, there's, there's, we will not accept no mm-hmm. for an answer. Mm-hmm. He's an officer in the Army. If we order him to take it, the president does, he must take it. Mm-hmm. And don't let him try to talk you out of it. Mm-hmm. Literally, that's what they're telling him. Mm-hmm. So General uh, uh, Colonel Hardy gets on the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad and goes out to, uh, uh, to, to Frederick. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he's given a wad of cash, and he finds a wagon who can take him over to where Meade's headquarters are located. Meade is commander of the 5th Corps in the Army of the Potomac. And he arrives at the head, at uh, Meade's uh, headquarters, and uh, goes up to Meade's uh, uh, adjutant general, and asks him, "I want to visit with General Meade. I'm J- James Hardy from the War Department." So they let him in. He wakes Meade up. This is about oh three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> and <laughs> this is what Hardy says to him. He says, "General." I have some bad news for you. And Meade wrote his wife day thereafter, literally the next day, and said, I thought I was under arrest. (laughs) Or I had been relieved of duty. Exactly. I mean, news that comes to you you in the middle of the night, it is not going to be good. No, no, no. From the War Department. (laughs) What what possible good could come of this? Right. And so Meade... Bede sits up on the side of his cot and says, look it, I'm, I'm at peace with the world. I have done nothing to anybody. He actually yeah. thinks he's going to be arrested. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Hardy, who, who really likes Meade, he's, uh-huh. he's, he's a, and Meade really likes him too. They know one another. Uh-huh. And Hardy, of course, knows Hooker as well. Mm-hmm. But he says, no, 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 General. I'm, I'm not here to give you trouble uh, uh, except in this aspect, <laughs> and that is, you've been named commander of the Army of the Potomac. And Meade says, no, 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 that, that General Reynolds should be the one to take this, not me. Mm. He immediately, was commanding the First Corps. He immediately thought of that. Yeah, he did. He? Interesting. And those two, Reynolds and Meade, had kind of served together the entire mm-hmm. war up to this stage, mm-hmm. particularly commanding elements of the Pennsylvania Reserves, because mm-hmm. both of them are Pennsylvanians. Okay. And... He says, no, 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 General Reynolds, the Army wants him. Don't and, – and Hardy says, General, they all talked about this. They all, they all said you'd prefer Reynolds to come in or somebody else or anybody else but you. 
But no, the order's peremptory. Mm-hmm. You've got to take it. Mm-hmm. And Meade says, well, I've been tried and convicted, and I guess I need to go to execution. <laughs> oh, gosh. And that's how the army was given to George Meade. Mm. Now, let me ask you something. Yeah. Did Hardy have to go see Hooker first to relieve him of command, or was that after he talked with no. Meade? He went to Meade's headquarters of the Fifth Corps. Okay. Then, then, to then Meade uh, got his staff together. Oh. And Hardy and Meade and, and Meade's staff then went to Hooker's headquarters, where the first thing Hardy did was go in and tell Joseph Hooker that he had been relieved of command. Then Meade and Hooker confronted one another, shook hands. I mean, they are old army friends. I mm-hmm. mean, this is always a tough thing to do. Mm-hmm. And um, they conferred. That had to have been while. an uncomfortable conversation. Very, yes. very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. The whole thing was uncomfortable. Awkward. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's great stories of when Hooker leaves, how all these officers around of the staffs mm-hmm. of Meade as well as Hooker's come up to greet him. And they, he walks along shaking the hands of each one of them. Mm. Uh, one young uh, uh, courier in Sedgwick's corps wrote a, wrote a letter home to his mother saying it was a very emotional mm. uh, farewell. And there were many people who seemed saddened by the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But I'm happy to see him go which is pretty much the way the Army felt. Hmm. They liked Hooker. So personally liked. They liked him But perhaps not trusted professionally. But he, he couldn't get the job done. Mm-hmm. And, but, but when you think about uh, what happened with the Battle of Gettysburg, and of course it's a victory, the first victory the Army of the Potomac will have in the entire war, just think of all the failures leading up to that. One after another. And the casualties. And General Meade inheriting this. And he inherits this. Three days. Right. Now, he couldn't have known then that that conflict would occur. No, no. no, But he knew Lee's army was out there. Yes. Now, I wanted to ask you, why, why did Hooker take the parallel course north if he knew that... Lee was on the other side of the Cumberland Mountains. What was Hooker's purpose in staying on the east side? Was that because his job was to protect Washington and he didn't have enough to leave back there? Yeah, there, there are two answers to mm-hmm. that. One, your comment about him protecting Washington, yes, that's mm-hmm. number one. Mm-hmm. Um, with the Army of the Potomac, their standing orders— Mm-hmm. Or you protect the city of Washington. Mm-hmm. And when Meade becomes commander, they say your your duty is to protect Washington and Baltimore. Because mm-hmm. if you're going up into central Pennsylvania, south or eastern Pennsylvania, southeastern Pennsylvania, you're within you're within a walking distance of Baltimore, almost. And that's because of the railroad, the, the railroads, as Telegraph. well as just the location. Baltimore is mm-hmm. in Maryland. Uh, it's north of Washington. Mm-hmm. It's closer to the uh, area of operations. Mm-hmm. And so the standing orders to George Meade were, you protect Baltimore and Washington. Mm-hmm. But Hooker, 
Now, coming north to try to confront Lee, mm-hmm. you're right. He was on the east side of the Shenandoah Valley of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Mm-hmm. Most of Lee's army were moving in the Shenandoah north. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason Hooker follows that route is not only to protect Washington, but there's a, all the military theorists of the 19th century, including Dennis Hart Mahan, who was the instructor in military science at West Point. Mm-hmm. He was the teacher of Hooker, mm-hmm. teacher of Meade. He taught everybody in the Army. He taught everybody in Lee's Army. He, he was teach. there from the 1830s all the way until 1863. So he was there when Lee was superintendent. Yes, and he was there when West Lee Point. was superintendent. Mm-hmm. He follows the teachings of Carl von Clausewitz and Antoine de Jomini mm-hmm. uh, in that there are three ways to pursue an army. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is a direct pursuit. Go right up following them. Mm-hmm. The other is to uh, attack, see if you can attack that, the, 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 the army you want to pursue on its flanks. Mm-hmm. The third is to follow a parallel course. Mm-hmm. And that was Hooker's strategy. That's Hooker's strategy. And mm-hmm. in fact, that is the preferable uh, mm-hmm. strategy okay. of, of pursuing an army. You don't go behind it because you, you, you can't do anything to that army behind it. Mm-hmm. On a parallel course, you may cause it to move more rapidly than it wants to. Mm-hmm. When an army has to move faster than it wants to, it can disintegrate, mm-hmm. particularly if it's a retreat. This is an advance. But right. still, if they're moving too fast because of fear that they're going to be met somewhere, well, it could fray mm-hmm. that army. So you move on a parallel course. Even though you're risking, as as happened, losing sight of exactly where your enemy is. I mean, they're in the mountains but over you've, there. you've got to get to a position where you could confront him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the deal. And you've got to, it's a race. Mm-hmm. And you make it a race. And so that's where the prologue of your book ends. Ends. (laughs) And the story of Meade's command at Gettysburg begins. Begins. And I'm telling you, it's a very compelling story. What I one of the things I love about this book is the beautiful illustrations you've selected, including the heretofore unpublished photograph of General George Gordon Meade during the Pennsylvania campaign that is um, the illustration for the frontispiece of the book. That is a really incredible picture. But you've got lots of amazing photography in this book, beautiful illustrations um, by contemporary artists who were eyewitnesses Mm -hmm. to the action. Right. this is a richly illustrated book. The presentation of it, um, the way it's been presented by its publisher, University of North Carolina Press, it's beautiful. It it's astonishingly stunning. beautiful. It's, um, it's it's. I really can't wait to see it in yeah. print. For those who are interested, you can you can. It it comes out on the seventh of June. And Amazon already, you can pre-order it on Amazon. 
Uh, you can also pre-order it through the University of North Carolina Press on its website. Mm-hmm. But um, Amazon, of course, is the easiest one for everybody to get to. And it's, again, named Mead at Gettysburg, A Study in Command. And it picks up where we just left off. <laughs> We're looking forward to seeing it. And we'll talk some more about this book in some forthcoming podcasts we as well. We certainly will. Certainly will. Well, thank you for talking with us today, Ken. And as I said, it's good to be back with Dynamic Studios and Mr. Neil Kesterson, our sound our designer. Our old friend, Neil Kesterson. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. We'll see you soon. Become an American hero who participates in our mission by joining us at witnessinghistory.org. Download our documentaries and free teacher education materials that conform to grade-level education standards at pbslearning.org. Follow Witnessing History on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.